That's a great old hymn, isn't it? Love those hymns and the songs and the music, the lyrics that they teach us such great truths that come from God's Word, and it's always uh, very affirming. It's all about faith this morning. We're in a series in the book of Romans. One of the unique things, if you're fairly new to Calvary Church, that we love to do here and hold as a high priority for us is the what we call the expositional teaching of God's Word. That means we take the Scriptures, we like to open a book, a chapter, and then we just let that chapter speak for itself. It's not what I want to say, it's what I want us to hear from God saying. And so that's part of what we are doing. We used to be in Ezekiel, a book that not many will spend a lot of time studying in. And we'll see Ezekiel in heaven and we'll just have to talk to him about that. But also we are now in the book of Romans. Romans is a beautiful book that the Apostle Paul wrote from Corinth. And he wrote it to the believers that are in the city of Rome at the time. And uh, that first century church, uh, they're sort of growing in their faith. There's some schisms between the Jews and the Gentiles. And, and they're having a hard time working through what it really means to believe in Jesus Christ. And so the last few weeks, we've been dealing with the first three chapters. And the first three chapters of Romans is all about sin. And so we saw how sin is, is so prevalent. There is none who does righteous. There is none who seeks after God. And now we look at the chapters uh, 4 and 5 today and next Sunday that is all about salvation. So it goes from sin to salvation. And then after we deal with salvation, the saving work of Christ, then we're going to be entering into chapters 6, 7, and 8. And it's all about sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word for to become holy, to be declared righteous, to, to reflect the salvation in the holiness of our lives. And then in chapters 9, 10, and 11 is a really challenging section of Scripture that are all about the sovereignty of God, that God is truly in control, and we can trust Him for that. And He takes people who are saved and sanctified to really have confidence in the sovereignty of God, because most people who are not saved and sanctified have no confidence in the sovereignty of God, and we try to do things on our own strength. And then finally, in chapters 12 and following, it's all about service. If you're truly saved and sanctified and believe in the sovereignty of God, you should be serving Him. There's some way that I am committing my life in service, as we just talked about earlier, volunteering. Where am I serving Jesus Christ? What is that uh, living sacrifice, as Romans 12 talks about? Where is that being manifested in my life today? And so this morning we want to continue in the whole subject of Romans, and today we begin salvation. There's a pretty little outline in the bulletin there for you, and some stuff on the backside we call the digging deeper that I want to reference here in a little bit. But let me begin by sharing from the email that I sent out this last week. And if you don't get my annual, I mean weekly email, uh, let us know. We'd love to include you on that. I know that probably all of you who get the email have thoroughly read it and underlined it and wrote some things in the margins to reflect on it. But for the one or two who did not, I was intrigued by a book called The Honored Society, A Portrait of Italy's Most Powerful Media. And uh, this author, Miss Reske, uh, writes about the faith of the mafia bosses. Now, that's almost like, doesn't it sound like an oxymoron, faith of, of mafia box, uh, bosses? Uh, one example is Sicilian mafioso Morcello Fava. After he left his clan, he said, Before I had to kill someone, I would cross myself. I would say, Dear God, stand by me. Make sure nothing happens. But I wasn't the only one who crossed himself before and prayed to God. We all did. And Bernardo Provenzano was arrested for his deeds as a mafia boss. The police 
found five Bibles with his devotional comments written in the margins as he would read through it and reflect on it. And many of the scriptures were underlined. You know what a lot of people like to do with that? Different colors. He collected statues of Jesus in his home and on the statues had the inscription, Jesus, I put my trust in you. And then it also said, during the trial of uh, Michael Greco, when he was asked about his many murders, he said, I have a very invaluable gift. I have an inner peace as he kills people. And in his prison cell, he had two liturgical books. He had the Gospels and he had a book called Pray, Pray, because he's a religious guy. And it made me realize that not that we have mafia here at Calvary Church. And if we do, this is for you. But uh, I suspect that we do not. I suspect that. <clears throat> I have pretty good reason to believe that we do not. Uh, but it made me realize, and here's the way when I read about that book, that if the mafia who kill people and do horrible things from all that I, I've never known one, I've never been part of the mafia, so I don't know, but I, I take the word of those who say these things about them. So if they indeed are doing those things and are in prison for it, properly so, then what about the rest of us who don't do those things? If the mafia can do those things and think they have real, authentic faith in Jesus Christ, is it possible that many of us in this room, including myself, who we try to do good things. I mean, you're here. You could be at home. You could be doing something else. You could have gone to the Pro Bowl in Hawaii. There's a lot of other things you could be doing. But you volunteer to come here, and we say, praise God for that. Is it possible that some of us who do those good things could also have a misunderstanding or a delusion over the reality of our faith? So if people who do such evil like the mafia can have a delusional faith that is fraudulent, how much more dangerous is it for those of us who try to do good things, but also equally, possibly, potentially, have a fraudulent faith? So this morning, I'd like to drill down in Romans 4 on the importance that you and I have the kind of faith that assures us that we're indeed a changed transformed, resurrected in our souls kind of a person so that the saving work of Jesus has truly moved us, as Paul says, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and that all we have waiting for us is that heavenly home. So Romans chapter 4 is that. And I'm going to talk about the qualities of authentic faith that indeed does save us. Not to create paranoia, but to affirm us in that journey. And I put on the outline there, authentic faith avoids all add-ons to complete our salvation. And Paul the Apostle in Romans 4 has three add-ons that people in Rome were including, and we still do it today. There's a great high propensity for doing that. The verse that I wanted to first focus on are verses 1 through 8. The add-on of verses 1 through 8 are, is the add-on of works. I do good works. And many of you are, this is not new territory. But let me read 1 through 8. It says this, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 
But to the one who does not work but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and those who, and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And David knows best how wonderful it is that God doesn't remember sins because he's done some terrible things in his life along with the many good things, of course. The first thing that I want us to understand is that... and. And it's so important that we get it, and we get it to the degree that we can actually interact with people that need this even more than maybe some of us. And that my faith does not add on a work requirement. Paul uses Abraham as a wonderful illustration. I'm going to refer to him. It says directly in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. It's way back in Genesis 12 that we meet Abraham, just a little bit of a background story on who he is and what God did for him. And in Genesis chapter 11 at the end and then 12, God intervenes. He goes to this little area of Mesopotamia uh, above the the Persian Gulf there, and there's 300,000 people living there at the time. The society in which Abraham lived was an advanced society. They write, uh, they would create and build things. It was a very productive society. Uh, They were the outstanding group of people in that day. God comes to these Mesopotamian people, and of all the 300,000 that are there residing, producing, Abraham's a wealthy man. He had achieved a success already. He, He had really risen to the top in society and culture. He would have been the standout, one of the standout people in that day along with many others in that very productive society. And God looks over all the 300,000. He says, Abraham, or Abram as he called him then, as his name was, I want you. Abram, you want me? You want me for what? Abram, here's what I want you to do. And in Genesis chapter 12 it says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in your families of the earth you will be blessed. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. He just goes. Can you imagine God, this very polytheistic, many gods that people believed in there. And suddenly this new God, Jehovah Jireh, as Abram will come to call him, new God, our God, Elohim, the God we worship today, the God Jesus Christ that we worship today, shows up just out of nowhere. He says, Abram, I've got a plan for your life. It's a wonderful plan. Leave here, leave your family, and go to a place I'm going to show you. Turns out to be the nation of Israel as we know it today. And he just goes. I mean, how many of us respond to this new God, this new command, this new capacity to obey? Abram does that. And so Paul says, this is the kind of guy we need to learn from. The kind of faith that Abram has is the kind of faith we need to have. So he uses Romans 4. He says, man, of all the people in the Old Testament I can think about that I want to illustrate what genuine, authentic faith looks like, I'm going to Abram because this guy's really on top of what true faith looks like. 
So he drills down on who Abram is and tells us that about Abram. And the exciting thing about Abram, he doesn't come to a saving faith in 12. He doesn't come to a saving faith in chapters 13 or 14. It's not until we get to chapter 15 that we understand that God begins to declare to Abram his righteousness. And we read in Genesis chapter 15 as God repeats his command to him that he wants to create a great nation to him. And uh, he says it this way. So Abram has already been told what we call the Abrahamic covenant. But in 15, then God comes to him a second time. Now, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir. This guy you're talking about? No. But the one who will come forth from your own body, you will physically produce a child. And so shall your descendants be. He says, Look at the heavens and count the stars. You will be able to count them. And then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned to him as righteousness. Abram trusted the word of God. There's certain qualities about his faith. It was an uncertain time. It required miraculous change by God. It was not perfect faith. Even after God said, Abram, I'm going to give you a child by your body, you know what Abram did. He goes to his housemaid, Hagar. Sarah says, I can't give you a baby. She became, she was at 90 by the time this thing was going on. I'm 90 years old. The last thing I want is to get pregnant. I can't get pregnant. How many 90-year-olds want to get pregnant right now? I mean, I mean, think about it. And Abram's 99. 99. Can you imagine changing diapers when you're 101? Scary, isn't it? So that's where they're at. But Abram says, you know, Sarah's not getting pregnant. God, I need to help you out. Oh, God loves it when we, when we say things like that. I need to help you out because it's not going so well for me. I was trying to trust you, Lord, but I know nah, it must be, a ba- must be a bad day for you. So what does Abram do? He says, Sarah, you know, it's not a bad idea, Hagar. It's not bad. Okay, so he takes Hagar, has his way with her. She becomes pregnant, and she has a child, Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations, as you probably know. As a result of that willful, selfish act, we today have the Mideast crisis where there will never be peace until Jesus returns. We're still living with the consequences of Abram's selfish, untrusting act with Hagar. We still have the consequences. That's why I said last week, and no offense to golfers, but sin is like golf. The, the, the more you hit a stray shot, the harder it is for the next shot and the harder it is for the next shot. And when you sin, it creates bad placement of your life so that then consequences of other decisions get even more complex and complicated and difficult. And so we see it with the Arab and the Israeli conflict that began here in Genesis 16 and 17. So God says, I want to use Abram as an example that your works can't save you. Because Abram tried to use works to save himself by going to his uh, 
handmade, if you will, Sarah's, Hagar. And he says in chapter 4, 1 through 3, and here's what he's teaching us, and we don't have time to kind of dig deep enough on each of these sections, but in chapter 4, 1 through 3, he's simply saying that those of us who think works will save us are opening ourselves up to pride. Pride is the, is the enemy of faith. Pride is the enemy of God. Pride is the root source of all sins. Every sin goes back to pride. And God says, I don't want you working your way to me. I don't need your help. I can do anything I want to do. I'm all powerful. If you trust me, I'll do it. But when you think you need to help me, you're ending up with an Ishmael. And an Ishmael is only going to create more conflicts and more problems for you. So walk in faith, not in works to gain my righteousness. Because works create pride, as he says here. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. But also my good works in 3 through 8, my good works will never remove my sin. There's nothing I can do to gain it. And we know this verse, but I want to say it just to help those of us who are a little fuzzy on it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. We can't gain that, for no one should boast, for we are his workmanship." boasting comes out of good works. I brag about what I've achieved. And God says, I don't want the competition. I don't need the help. I can save you if you just trust in me. Then the great passage in Titus. I love this, this rich passage that Paul the Apostle also wrote. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration, renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior that being justified by His grace will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And uh, whenever you hear people say, um, I'm trying to be... Uh, well, let me put it this way. When we ask the question, if you ask the question, probably most people you work with tomorrow, if you should stand, if you should die today, and you stand before God in heaven, and God in heaven should ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom of heaven? Why should I let you into heaven? I bet there's a 90% chance that they're going to say, I've tried to be good. I've tried to help the poor. I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. And I just kind of cross my fingers and hope it works out. That's probably what most people in America would say today. And God says, you're not coming to heaven. Because that doesn't work. As the Apostle Paul says repeatedly, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, keeping the Ten Commandments, going to church, being good, helping the poor. Not on the basis of the deeds which we have done in righteousness. They're righteous deeds, but they can't save us. Like Abram going to Hagar to help God out, we don't go and do good works to help God get us into heaven. We can't do any works. Second, Faith does not add religious rituals to save us. That's where he goes next. In verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? So he's talking about the circumcised or the Jewish, the uncircumcised or the Gentile. For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Again, it repeats that over and over. What then was it credited? While it was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And so I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I don't think a lot of us are struggling over circumcision. But what he's saying there in a broader sense is that religious rituals, religious 
symbolic rituals like circumcision. They were saying, as a Jew, I have a better standing with God because I've been circumcised. That's what he's talking about. That was the problem. And those Gentiles, they're uncircumcised. And some people were saying to to those who are followers of Jesus, you need to get circumcised to be right with God. It, It was kind of a problem in those days. But Paul says it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous before circumcision was even a law that God passed. And so what he wants us to teach in this thing are two simple things. Religious rituals can never cause us to be righteous. Taking communion is a religious ritual. It doesn't make us saved. Being baptized is a religious ritual. We're never saved by that. In my first Baptist church in Lodi and Faith Baptist in Corona, I would love to really preach on that and drive it home because when you're a Baptist, your, your whole church name is revolving around this act of baptism as opposed to Jesus. So I couldn't tell you how many people are, you know, well, when I was mentioning this a few weeks ago, when were you saved? Well, I was baptized in 1956. No, when were you saved? Not when did you express your faith in baptism. So I just want to say this as clearly as I can. If you're here and you were baptized and you're depending upon baptism or communion or catechism or some other rite or religious relic of an activity for your salvation, you are deeply misguided because God says, I don't need the help. I can save you without that. But there are religious rituals that are important, like baptism and communion, because it says in verses 11 and 12, religious rituals confirm our righteousness. That's what he's talking about here, where circumcision is a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. It's a seal. It's an indicator. Baptism is a seal. It's an indicator of that which is true in my heart. So we do have baptisms. But it's to indicate that we indeed are followers of Jesus Christ. And then finally, the add-on is this. Three add-ons. Works, religious rituals, and then finally, an obedience to the law. Keeping the laws. The Ten Commandments is a reference earlier. In verses 13 through 18. In verse 13 in particular, it says, For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And of course, the key understanding here is that the law had not even been given to mankind. Moses comes later. So Abraham had no law. He had no Ten Commandments. He had no uh, uh, ceremonial laws. He had no devotional laws, no laws about sacrifices. He just didn't have any of that. And he still saved. Remember a long time ago, uh, I started a life group about this. It just it really stuck with me. A long time ago, and I'm old enough to talk about long time ago now, and it really means something because <laughs> it really is a long time ago. I remember watching Johnny Carson. Remember Johnny Carson? Many, many of you, I, looking around the room, you would remember Johnny Carson. And I remember Billy Graham uh, being on Johnny Carson, which is a wonderful thing, because uh, Billy Graham is such a winsome and attractive communicator of what I'm talking about here. And he just never would not be on a show and not give the gospel. His son Franklin is much the same way. I love that about them. And Johnny Carson was talking about religious stuff. And yeah, you know, I'm Christian. Yeah, I believe. Yeah, I believe. And, and uh, you know, I try to be good and try to keep the commandments and all that. And Billy Graham says, well, uh, have you kept all the commandments? And he says, no. And he's, he was well known for his womanizing. 
And uh, Billy Graham says, well, do you realize that the Bible teaches, he loves that, the Bible says, the Bible teaches that if you break one of the Ten Commandments, it's the same as breaking all of the Ten Commandments. Because Johnny says, well, I, I try to keep most of the law. Adultery, maybe not so good, but the others I'm pretty good at. And so when Billy Graham says, if you break one of the ten, you've broken all of the ten. According to James, the, uh, the scripture, you've broken all of them. It's the first time I can remember Johnny Carson being befuddled and not knowing. He was just silent. He didn't know how to respond to that. And I love that truth that James teaches that Billy taught us and me as a young, very young at the time, that if I break one part of the Ten Commandments, I've broken all of them in the sight of God. Some sins in God's eyes are not worse necessarily than all other sins. All sins are a violation of God's law. I can't keep all of the law to get saved. The danger is, and here's the application, I think, in, in a way that we need to understand, that in the era when I'm talking about, in the Johnny Carson era when I was growing up as a little kid, there was a tendency for what we call legalism, and legalism is another way of expressing keep laws to be right with God. I can't keep enough laws to be right with God. I don't have the capacity to obey the laws of God to be right with God. Righteousness is a gift from God through which then I express the laws in obedience to Him. And so what he's talking about here in Romans 4 is the law reveals our sin, but it cannot make us righteous. The law is good. I wouldn't know that certain things are wrong if the law doesn't teach that those things are wrong. I need the law. And where do we come up with the concept that murder is wrong? Well, we all concluded that murder is wrong, but who says so? Well, God says so, and there is an internal compass that tells us. Now, we have diminished the laws that are truly still sinful. We are changing them regularly, but they are still sinful in the laws of God. And the law obscures the life of grace and hope, and that's where legalism comes in. Legalism causes me to lose the grace and the hope of God. That's why he says in 16, For this reason it is by faith in order that it might be in accordance with grace. And in verse 18, In hope against hope he believed. Grace and hope come through the gospel of faith. Um, legalism and the law squelch grace and hope. And I want to pass on that, you know, even here, in the, in the time that I've been here at Calvary, I... I want us to be a, a church that expresses the love and the grace and the hope that comes through Jesus freely. We don't have dress codes. We don't have hat codes. We don't have drink codes. We don't have codes and principles that you have to abide by to be acceptable here. And when God looks at people, when God looks at you and me and just this is so important. When God looks at you and me, He doesn't look at how wealthy or poor we are. When God looks at you and me, He doesn't look at the color of our skin. When God looks at you and me, He doesn't look at how many degrees we have behind our name. When God looks at you and me, He doesn't look at what we're wearing or whether we have hair or no hair. He doesn't count whether we have gray hair, black hair, blue hair. He doesn't care. That's not his priority. We distinguish with people on those 
second and third degree areas of importance. You know all God looks at? When God looks at you and me, the only thing He cares about is whether I have the righteousness of Jesus or the sin of my life. Righteous or sin, which category am I in? And my faith determines that. I can move from sin into the righteousness by freely trusting in the birth, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That saves me. And so God says, I care about that. In all the world, whatever country, whatever society, there is nothing more important. That's the only dividing line with God. That's the only thing that God calls us into. All of this, everything, you know, you think about this. Every time we preach from God's Word, it often boils down to like four or five themes. Just repeat it over and over and over again. I can go to the Old Testament, pull out Abraham. What was the big deal with God and Abraham? I want to make you righteous, Abraham. It was a big deal way back there in the 1920th century, B.C. And he says, now fast forward to Paul's day. Righteousness and sin, from sin to salvation, chapter 3 to chapter 4. What is it 2,000 years after Paul wrote that? Today it's the same thing, that God would help us move from the category of sin into the category of righteousness, because that's what he's doing in the world today. All other things are secondary to that. Nothing is as important as that. And so God is calling you and me to understand that my faith needs to be authentic so that my righteousness is a reality. And there is a problem that a lot of people who think they've got it have these add-ons. Why should I let you into my kingdom? Well, I've tried to be good. Why should I let you into my kingdom? Well, I was baptized when I was five. Why should I let you into my kingdom? I've kept most of the Ten Commandments. And God says, none of those are right. Here's the answer. If I stood before God in heaven and God just should say, David, why should I let you into my kingdom today? I would say, Father in heaven, I put my faith alone in Jesus alone, that Jesus paid for the penalty of my sin. He died for me, and He rose again so I could have new life. No other answer is correct. It's not a multiple choice. It's not a true and false. It's just that's what He's looking for. And it's got to be real. Because if I add on, you know, 95% Jesus, God did or Jesus did, but another 5%, I need to help him out, forget about it. Not getting there. 100% is what God does. Now, sometimes it doesn't go well. Authentic faith, trust in God's promises during our weaknesses. What I love about this is to go back into that passage there. Notice what he does here now with Abraham. In verses 19 through 21, Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. Now what Abraham is thinking about, I'm 99 years old. I'm supposed to be the father of a multitude like the sands of the sea. That's how big my nation should be. And he says, I can't even have one son. And the son that I got, Ishmael, I went off the reservation and there I was with Hagar. And it's not working out so well. And Hagar was one of the first abused moms in society. So he's weak in faith. He contemplated his own body. I'm 99. And he says about himself, I'm as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. He's actually 99. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, she's 90. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform. 
fully assured. That's the kind of faith. Now, we know what the faith is not. It's not faith plus works, faith plus religious rituals. It's not faith plus um, keeping the law. So what is it? How deep, how abiding, how authentic should that faith be? It's in Romans, Romans, Genesis chapter 22 that we look at the, boy, the depth of the faith of Abraham as he is commissioned by God again. First time he's commissioned is Genesis 12 to go to a land, leave his family behind. And in Genesis chapter 22, we find this amazing account of God calling him. And what I encourage you to do is to look on the backside of the outline. Because on the backside of the outline, I've got four things that his faith is being expressed. Let me read through it and you look at that. I don't have it on the big screen behind me here. But I love this little story of Abraham and authentic faith. This is the kind of faith that we want us all to have. I want to have it. I want you to have it. Notice in chapter 22, verse 1 of Genesis, God comes to Abraham again. He changed his name from Abraham to Abraham now. Now it came about after these things, after the Hagar things, the Hagar, the Ishmael things. God doesn't give up on us when we mess up. Now, it came about when these things that God tested Abraham. God wants to find out how genuine is your faith, Abraham. And you know what? God will test you and me to find out how genuine our faith is. He says, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The first quality of genuine faith, as you look on the back of the outline, it's faith that is open to continued direction and uh, leading from God. I'm open to God. I don't know what he's going to ask me to do, but I'm open. Verse 2. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. Go to the land of Moriah. Land of Moriah, uh, Mount Moriah, is actually where the Temple Mount is today in Jerusalem. So he travels 50 miles, 50 miles he travels to Mount Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering in one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood uh, for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. But he says, offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain. Take the son, your only son, and sacrifice him on an altar. Kill him, burn him. Now that's pretty bizarre. Very bizarre. What kind of faith is God testing for? Faith that is obedient to God's word regardless of the cost. Now God's not going to ask us to do that. But he's going to ask us to believe in him when it's very, very hard, and I felt very, very weak. And as God said about Abraham, he says, I'm looking at my body. I'm 99. I don't, I don't need this. So when Isaac is, is a young man, he's probably 115 or so years old, Abraham is. When you're 115 years old, you're looking to sit back and just eat at 4 o'clock and have, watch Jeopardy at 6 o'clock. You're not interested in new tests from God. Isn't that beyond me? Isn't that behind me? Am I over that already? But God comes to Abraham and says, you know, I'm still not done with you. If you're living, you're breathing, you're walking, and you're not dead, I'm not done with you. we got more to do. So he tests this faith. And the faith of Abraham that is authentic is, I'm listening to God, I'm obedient to God, and I don't care how big the assignment is. I'm still walking with God. 
Then he goes on and says, Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with a donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. And of course, there is that key phrase everybody loves to point out, and I'll point it out too. Stay here with a donkey, and I and the lad will go over there to the sacrificial, sacrificial spot, and we will worship you, and we will return. I'm going up with Isaac and myself, and Isaac and I, we're coming back down, but I'm going to sacrifice him because God told me to do it. And so Abraham took the word of the offering, laid his son Isaac on, the, on it, and he took from the hand of the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. Imagine Abraham walking with his son Isaac, and he puts his arm around the shoulder, and we're going to have one, one kind of a sacrifice up here. And so Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and says, My father, and he says, Here I am, my son. And he says, Behold the fire of the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And God will provide, Abraham says. He'll provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And they came to the place at which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know you trust me. That's, that's the faith. It's depth. It's richness to it. And so the faith is listening to God. Faith is obedient to God. And the third thing on there, faith that is power, that God is powerful enough to provide for me in the most difficult of times. That's authentic faith. That's rich faith. That I don't worry about what the assignment is from God. I'm walking with Him in obedience to the will that I understand and believe in. That's authentic faith. And then finally, the last point on there is it's faith that perseveres, waiting for God to reveal His grace at the right time. So God says, don't kill your only son. Then Abram raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thickets by his thorn horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, one of the names of God. I love this kind of faith, and I, I hope that you and I can acquire that kind of faith, can grow in that faith, can deepen that faith. The faith that is, listens to God. A faith that is obedient regardless of the task. A faith that it believes in the power of God to provide even when it looks impossible and I'm too weak to do anything about it. It's a faith that says, at the last minute, I may not see it until the very last minute where the grace of God comes and supplies for me what I need the most. It's that kind of faith that God says, now I know. Now I, He knows all things, but now you've demonstrated to me authentic faith. My prayer is that you and I would demonstrate authentic faith to God. Notice what Abraham thought in his heart. Hebrews tells us, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up sacrifice, Isaac, and he had received the promise which was offering up his only son. It was to whom he was called in Isaac, your descendants should be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham was going to kill Isaac, but his faith was so deep that he thought God was going to raise him from the dead. 
And he had no biblical basis to, to know that, except that his faith was so deep and rich and abundant and just overflowing. That's the faith that God invites us into. And then finally, it's authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And I quit with this one. It's authentic, authentic faith that trust in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection as payment. And we're going to pick this up next week. But it says, Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. For our sake also to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus from the Lord from the dead. He was also delivered over because of your trans our transgressions. He was raised because of our justification. And simply put it is this way. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus, he moves me from sin to righteousness by the sacrifice, the payment of Jesus Christ. As you and I go out, I know this has been kind of heavy and there's not a lot of lightheartedness here, but I encourage us as a congregation, as a church family, as Calvary Church of Santa Ana, that you and I go out, that we demonstrate the faith that Abraham expressed so that others around us can see there's something different. You're trusting God in the midst of a very difficult time. A time of weakness like Abraham was weak in his body, but God still provided. And that God has a lamb out there, and it's called Jesus Christ. And some people don't discover him till late in life, and some discover him early in life, but like the lamb caught in the thicket and the horns in, the, in that bush, suddenly he sees it. I pray that God would open our eyes to that same lamb. This last week I was, uh, and I'll finish with this, with our Biola board in San Diego, and I felt like I got a cold. You know, sit in a room like that all day long with other people. It gets kind of annoying, and, uh, and you get everybody's germs. I got this thing going on in my chest, but <clears throat> I was sitting next to one of the other board members, and um, and she was telling me she came to faith in Christ when she was 16. But she says, my mother, who's like 75, has still yet to come to believe in Jesus as her Savior. And I'm so burdened for her. And I thought, she, this woman, she speaks for a lot of us. Who have got these people like that at 75 that still has yet to believe. And the lamb is over here like Abraham. The lamb is right there. And God opened their eyes to see the lamb. That they don't need to die a needless death. Let them see the lamb that is Jesus. And that that lamb can take their place on that altar and that sacrifice. So I invite you, as I've said, I will pray for her and her mother. And I committed to that. And I pray for people every day that I have on my list that God would open their eyes like He did to Abraham, to the Lamb that can be their substitute, as that Lamb was the substitute for Isaac. Would you join me in praying for those that need to have that spiritual eyesight? God would remove the blindness of Satan so they can see the Lamb that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I know that there are many of us who carry the concern of those that we love and care about, who have yet to see the Lamb. Their faith has not been established. They may be relying upon good works, religious rituals, or just trying to keep the Ten Commandments. And God, those add-ons, they don't count 
I pray that we would become more like Abraham and that, God, we would be obedient and help those around us see the Lamb that is Jesus to invite them to trust in Him as well. And if there's any here today, may they see the Lamb that is Jesus and trust in Him today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.